I'm going to read from John chapter 11, starting at verse 38. John chapter 11, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay across it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound in linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day again that you give us to eat together, to fellowship together, and to learn from your word. Lord, I pray that uh, this day you'd remind us that you are the resurrection and the life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think I've asked this question here before, but I'll ask it again. How often do you think about heaven in your day-to-day life? When was the last time that you thought about heaven? Um, I think the older we get, maybe the more frequently we we, uh, think about it. We get more excited about it, perhaps. Um, But I think the average person does not think about heaven very much at all. I think it's something, if they believe in it, it's out there, it's distant, it's in the future, it's nice to know about, but it maybe doesn't affect our day-to-day lives very much. But I think that this uh, miracle of Jesus points us back to the resurrection, to, to heaven itself, that uh, we leave this world and, and, and go to another through Jesus Christ. I think that uh, there are a lot of misconceptions and wrong ideas about heaven. And maybe we share some of those. Uh, maybe one of the reasons that we don't get as, as excited about heaven is maybe we have wrong conceptions about what heaven and eternity will be like. Uh, certainly our society paints heaven in a very strange light that doesn't come from Scripture. Uh, if you ask the average person on the street what they thought of heaven, some images they might paint for you would be clouds, would be people walking around in white sheets, halos, harps, standing around singing for all of eternity. Uh, I want to read to you from a book entitled Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Um, because I think that this gentleman's understanding of heaven perhaps describes many people in the United States, and maybe on a certain level, if we're honest in our hearts, maybe it describes uh, ourselves. Um, He says, A pastor once confessed to me, whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. Why, I asked. I can't stand the thought of that endless tedium, to float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. It's all so terribly boring. Heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. I'd rather be annihilated than spend eternity in a place like that. And I have to agree with this gentleman that if that is what heaven is like, I would rather cease to exist as well. If heaven is simply 
an eternity, a never-ending life of strumming a harp. I have nothing against harps, just don't necessarily want to play one for all of eternity. Standing around in clouds or some kind of disembodied spirit that floats through eternity. I wouldn't want that either. And I think that that's a common view when people talk about heaven. But it does not come from Scripture. It does not come from what the Bible teaches us, what heaven and eternity will be like. We'll come back to that a little bit more as we go along. I want to look at four things today. And this is how some will broadly paint um, the, how Scripture itself is put together. Uh, four different things, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We're going to look at those, three, those four things, creation, fall, Redemption and consummation. Um, We've been looking last few weeks at the miracles of Jesus, and we see in these miracles, we see a fallen creation that is not as God intended it to be, and we see Christ entering that creation and bringing life and order to it to give us a picture of how life is supposed to be. He brings restoration wherever he goes. And in that restoration, he gives us hope that the life to come, the perfect life to come, the life that he shows through these miracles, the power that he exhibits, will be a wondrous life. We see in the miracle of Christ changing the water to wine in John chapter 2, we see a shortage. We see that those uh, who are at the party don't have all that they need. Uh, And I want to connect these to the book of Genesis, because Genesis 2 paints us that picture of the perfect world, of the world that God intended for uh, for mankind to live in. The garden is this wonderful, perfect place, as God intended it, for him to commune with his people, for them to live in paradise. In Genesis 2, we see that uh, they had all the abundance of food that they could have wanted. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God created the garden to be rich and abundant in food. There was no shortage, there was no blandness, it was glorious and wonderful. And so, in this miracle of changing the water to wine, we see Christ's power. We see his demonstration over the creation. And in this one instance, he returns a shortage to an abundance. Talked about the healing of the royal official's son in Capernaum in John 4. And we talked about the healing of the paralytic at Bethsaida in John 5. We see a man who could not move. His body no longer worked the way it was supposed to. Sin and death had entered the world and it brought with it disease Genesis 2.15 reminds us the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. God intended for mankind to work, to be vigorous and active. And so in Adam and Eve, we see this wonderful life they had together, naming the animals, working the garden, cultivating it. And yet at the time of Christ, we see how badly society and how badly creation has been broken and fractured in this man who was paralyzed. And Christ brought Life to his legs, brought life to his body again. The feeding of the 5,000 in John 6 reminds us, takes us back to John chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 2. And God told them, surely you may eat of every tree in the garden. There was an abundance. There was more than enough. And then in John again, we see how 
creation groans as the people hunger and there's not enough to eat. And Christ brings life and he brings abundance as he provides for the 5,000. John chapter 6, Jesus walking on the water, this wonderful miracle of overcoming creation itself, of not being bound by its limitations. Takes us back to Genesis 2.20. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. Man was to have dominion over creation. He was given work and he was to exercise that dominion. Christ brings dominion over the creation. He overcomes, in a sense, uh, what it is that creation has. And so John walks, uh, Jesus walks on water. And then lastly, he heals the blind man, a man who did not have sight, but he's given sight by Christ. And these wonderful pictures here of Jesus in his power, in a sense, overcoming sin in the world, overcoming the brokenness of this creation and restoring it even for a moment to its original intent. And so in creation, God created this wondrous place, this wonderful garden for man to live and exist and fellowship with him. It was his intent for man to be happy and joyful and to walk with him in obedience. But we know that we move from creation to fall. We know that sin entered the world, and we saw that a little bit with the pictures of Jesus working his miracles. We're told in Genesis 2 that Adam and Eve were to have every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. For the day that you eat it, you will surely die. God lays out this prohibition. He says, all of this is for you except for this one tree. And it's a test of Adam and Eve, and we know that they failed the test and plunged creation into disorder. Genesis 3 shows how the creation was plunged into chaos and disorder and death entered. Adam and Eve were cast from the garden and new feelings and despair was brought. Pride and blame and distrust and death entered this world that God had created. Going from perfection to the corruption of sin. And Genesis 3 goes on and reminds us, Therefore the Lord God, after they had sinned, sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God separated man from the garden. The creation that God had placed him in, he is now separated from. There was a gate, an entrance into the garden, and God drove them out of the garden because of their disobedience, and he placed a cherubim, an angel there with a flaming sword, and they're now barred from Eden. They're now barred from the place that they were created to exist. They're now barred, in a sense, from the intimate fellowship with God. And so the fall devastatingly affected humanity, and it affected creation. It affected intimacy with God. Man is now separated from God because of this sin. And so this separation takes us to the last miracle that Jesus performed, recorded in the book of John, the raising of Lazarus in John 11. Pre-fall, we see a world that was working the way it was supposed to. Man was existing, he was living, and he would have lived forever had he not sinned. 
It's believed that if Adam and Eve had not, had, had not eaten of the tree, if they had not failed the test, then the next thing they would have done would have been eaten from the tree of life. And they would have lived eternally in that garden, in fellowship with God himself. Not cast out. The world now works not as it was intended to, as it was created to. It's now fallen and filled with despair. And the miracles of Jesus show how Christ came into the world to restore creation, to restore the right relationship between God and man. His miracles show how powerful he was over his creation, that he manipulates creation and he, he works in it and he's supreme over it but also that he's bringing newness of life where there is death. John 11 starts this way, and we see this fallenness. We see this death. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Jesus is very familiar with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They're ones that he loved. And so to hear the news that Lazarus was ill would have been disturbing. Who have you lost? Who have you lost in your life? Who that you know has died and is no longer with us? And it may seem like an obvious question, but what makes it so hard when we lose somebody? What makes death so difficult to bear? What makes losing someone so difficult day to day to bear? Worry. We worry about our loved ones. John chapter 11, verse 3 says that, So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. We worry when someone is ill because we worry that they're not going to get better. We worry that they're going to die. We worry that they're no longer going to be with us. We won't see them again. And so worry is a part of this world. We see Mary and Martha grieving and worrying that their brother may very well die. And so they send word to Jesus. And his traveling delays uh, make it so that by the time the the word gets to him that Lazarus is sick, Lazarus has already died. What makes death so hard and sickness so hard is also doubt. We see in verse 32... That Mary and Martha both have questioned Jesus as to where he was. Verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Some read that to be an accusation, but many believe that this was Mary's continuing act of faith, saying, Jesus, I know that if you had been here, you have the power, you could have saved him. And so Mary's faith grows during this time, but ours does not always, does it? When someone is sick, perhaps it grows our faith, but perhaps it makes us fear and doubt. Perhaps it makes us wonder and worry. Is what we say we believe real? Is what the Bible says about life and death real? We doubt and we worry and we wonder. What also makes sin and and death and suffering difficult is, is loss. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus arrives to find Lazarus dead and all those around him weeping and in sorrow 
despondent. What makes suffering and death so hard is the loss. The fact that that person is no longer there with us. The person that we perhaps have lived with all our lives as a spouse is no longer there to see in the morning, to walk with during the day, to kiss at night. Perhaps a child has been lost and we mourn the fact that they died so young and and we miss them terribly. So Christ comes upon this and, and there's mourning and there's weeping and there's loss. So death obviously is hard because we miss dearly those whom we have lost. Death is also hard because of the suffering that leads up to the death and follows the death. Verse 35 simply says this, Jesus wept. When Jesus is brought to where Lazarus is laid, he he doesn't theologize about it. He doesn't pat people on the back and say, it'll be okay. He weeps with them. Better translation is he burst into tears. This was no tear rolling down the cheek of Jesus. This was no momentary amount of sorrow. This was an overwhelming sense of grief and loss. He bursts into tears. Yes, he knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Yes, he knows that it will be temporary, but he weeps because of the loss. He loves Lazarus. He loves Mary and Martha. He knows the pain that sin and death bring into the world. So he weeps over all of these things, but he genuinely weeps over the loss of someone that he loves. And I wonder at times if we can be guilty of what happens next. Verse 37, but some of them said, could he not who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They're asking a theological question at a moment of grief and death and loss. Saying, well, certainly Jesus who's done this could do this. Maybe they're trying to help Mary and Martha. Maybe they're, they're having a theological discussion. But I think sometimes we can be guilty of the same. We're, we're, we're striving to provide some kind of answer to someone who has lost someone. We're striving to help them feel better. And so sometimes our counsel can be counterproductive. Perhaps we can pat on the, them on the back and, and say, it'll be okay. You'll see them again one day. Perhaps we, and I'm guilty of this, bring too quickly a Bible verse that is meant to help, perhaps like Romans eight twenty eight that God promises to work all things together for your good, even this. And that is a help. But in that moment of grief, what they need from us, perhaps even more than that verse, that theology, is, is our tears and our presence. To mourn with them over someone who has been lost that we need to take that moment, that time, as Jesus did, and weep with them and empathize with them, that this is hard. This is not the way it's supposed to be. God didn't create us for death. He didn't create us that our bodies and souls would be separated. And so we need to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. And yes, in time, we need to be able to share with them the comforts of Scripture and the theology that does bring that comfort. But in the moment... We need to weep with them, and we need to cry with them, because death is a horrible thing, a horrible thing. If our Savior, who is about to raise him from the dead, weeps with them, certainly we too can weep with our loved ones. We see some fear, perhaps, here as well. Verse 38, 
And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And I'm inferring this, but perhaps when we look at a grave, it it brings out fear in us. Perhaps in Mary and Martha, it brought out that fear of, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he really who he said he was? Is he really going to raise Lazarus from the dead? And we cry out when we look at the grave, am I going to see my loved one again? Will I rise again one day? Will I see Jesus? And so fear can be bred in us during those times of suffering and death. And so suffering and death can bring out worry and doubt and a sense of loss and suffering and fear. The death of a loved one can be a time where our faith is shaken, where we doubt and eternal questions are raised and they leave us wondering. But it can also be a time of wonderful growth in faith and comfort where we see the fallenness of the world and we realize that one day we will be in an eternal home that is not fallen, that is not filled with tears, that is not filled with death. It gives us that faith and that hope that one day, through Jesus Christ, we too will be raised from the dead and reunited with our loved ones in Christ. And so all of these things are true, that they can evoke in us fear and doubts and worry, but it can also be a time where God creates in us more faith. And we see that with Mary and Martha as their faith grows more and more. An episode coming very soon where Mary anoints the feet of Jesus preparing him for his death, but an act of faith as well. So we've seen creation, and we've seen fall, and we've seen the the pain and the decay of the fall, but now, gloriously, we get to see redemption. Look at verse 38. And Jesus moved, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. There is a barrier that is there between Christ and between Lazarus, in a sense. There's a barrier that was placed between Adam and Eve, barring them from the garden. They had been kicked out. Sin and death are a barrier between us and God the Father. And yet Christ Jesus has come to take away that barrier, to remove the cherubim with the flaming sword, to allow us one day entry again into the the kingdom, into the garden. And we see here that Jesus is removing the barrier Uh, From life and death, he says, remove the stone. And this stone is simply that, a picture that is a barrier. We see also that Jesus removed Lazarus from the place of death. Not only was there a barrier between life and death, but there was also a place of death that Jesus called Lazarus out of. Verse 43, where he says, he cry out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And a better translation of that might be, Lazarus, come forth, come this direction, come this way. He's directing him from the place of death to the place of life. He's instructing him and giving him a new direction. He's removed the barrier between life and death, and now he's calling him out. We see this painted throughout the New Testament where we're told that we will have a new body in heaven. We will have a new body in heaven. And this place that we live in now, in a sense, is the place of death, where there is death and sorrow and sin. And we we will be ushered into a new world, a new heaven and a new earth, 
And we will be told, come this way. Jesus calls us by name. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest and I will give you life. So he calls us. He's removed the barrier between life and death through his death and resurrection. And now he's telling us, come to me. There's a place being prepared for you in heaven. These old bodies that we have, whether they're 13 or 30 or 63 or 83, are old and they're decaying. Someone said this, the moment we're born, we begin to die. Our bodies begin to decay. Our bodies begin to move towards that day when we will no longer breathe. And so these old bodies are reminders of this world of sin and death. And yet we wonderfully see here in the resurrection of Lazarus that one day we will be resurrected. We will be reunited with our old bodies and those old bodies will be radically transformed, brought into a new state of wonder. And what a great day that will be where we don't need these anymore. And our bodies work as they were meant to, to run and to jump and to swim without fatigue where we will work and labor, and it will be wonderful and productive, where we will love perfectly. There will be no barrier between us. We will understand one another, and we will love each other. We will care for each other. And so those barriers that are there, that divide between the old and the new, will be removed through Jesus Christ. We see here also that Jesus removes the markers of death in verse 44. The man who had died came out, and his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Then Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. Christ had done the work of unbinding his heart, of calling him and drawing him to himself, of bringing him to life spiritually, and then he died physically, and now Christ calls him out into newness of life, But Christ also tells them, unbind him and let him go. These markers of the old man, of the old body, uh, these signs of death that we wrap someone in linen or we place them in a coffin or we bury them in the ground, those markers of the old man, of the old life, of death and sin are being removed by Christ Jesus. Unbind him and let him go. And we see that Lazarus is taken back to the land of the living. John chapter 12 reminds us in verse 9 that Lazarus returned to his life and was, was a sign of wonder for those around him. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And many took this badly. It says, so the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So Lazarus had been brought back into life and his testimony, his witness, his newness of life showed the supremacy, the power, the, the godhood of Jesus Christ and the Pharisees hated. And so they hated Lazarus as well. But we see Lazarus being brought back into newness of life where his life, his resurrection, screamed out of the power of Christ. Unfortunately, though, until Christ comes again, we will not experience full deliverance from sin and death. 
One writer said, we will not see our real eternal home, the new earth, until after the resurrection of the dead. Because there's sad news that follows this. The glory of Lazarus being raised from the dead in a few years or even a few months is followed by Lazarus dying again. Because Lazarus, while he was raised from the dead, would eventually die again. And the sad news for us today that while we have hope in the resurrection, while we have hope in a life to come, we know that before that happens, we must die. Short of Christ Jesus coming back in our lifetime, we will die. But we can hold on to the resurrection hope that we have through Jesus Christ. So we've seen the creation, how God intended it to be. We've seen through sin that death has entered the world. We've seen through Jesus Christ that he's brought restoration, reconciliation, redemption. He's shown that through him there can be life and life to the full. And lastly, we see in Jesus Christ the consummation. And we're given glimpses of this consummation all over in Scripture. The book of Revelation paints wonderful pictures of Christ coming back to take his children to heaven. Paints wonderful pictures of what that heaven, that eternity, will be like. Wonderful pictures of um, our eternal and glorified bodies. Does the thought of heaven excite you today? Does the thought of going to heaven and being there eternally with God the Father... Walking with Christ Jesus, does it excite you today? Beyond the hope that we have of of no more pain, no more waking up in the morning with our backs aching, no more having to take numerous uh, pills, no longer having to see work as overwhelming and taxing and tiring and futile at times. Those things excite me about heaven, but far more than that, are we excited about being in heaven to be with Christ Jesus. I want to read you another excerpt from this book because just as many have a wrong view of heaven thinking that it's simply us as disembodied spirits floating throughout eternity, playing the harp, walking on clouds, Scripture paints a much more wondrous picture for us. And the author says, so look out a window, take a walk, Talk with your friend. Use your God-given skills to paint or draw or build a shed or write a book. But imagine it, all of it, in its original condition. The happy dog with the wagging tail, not the snarling beast, beaten and starved. The flowers unwilted, the grass undying. The blue sky without pollution. People smiling and joyful, not angry, depressed and empty. And if you're not in a particularly beautiful place, close your eyes and envision the most beautiful place you've ever seen, complete with palm trees, raging rivers, jagged mountains, waterfalls, and snowdrifts. Think of friends or family who have loved Jesus and who are with him now. Picture them with you, walking together in this place. All of you have powerful bodies, stronger than those of an Olympic decathlete. You are laughing, playing, talking, reminiscing. You reach up to a tree to pick an orange or an apple. You take a bite. It's so sweet, it's startling. You never tasted anything so good. And then this is wonderful. Now you see someone coming toward you. It's Jesus with a big smile on his face. You fall to your knees in worship. He pulls you up and embraces you. Is that 
Does that excite you? Does that concept of heaven, which comes from Scripture, not man's fallen view of it or Satan's attempt to try and depress us on heaven, but Scripture's painting and portrayal of of what an eternal life in a physical body, in a physical realm, in a world that is perfect for us, does that excite you? Yes, sir. Does it excite you to walk with Jesus, to talk with him, to fellowship with him? Because some people have said that a, a heaven without Jesus is really hell. Do we paint a picture of heaven that is so around us and about us and about our joys and pleasures, but it doesn't include Jesus Christ, that really paints a picture of hell itself? Because Scripture has told us that heaven is about Christ and about God's glory, and we get to be a part of that. So I hope this morning that you are excited about heaven, not just the relief of pain, not just being reunited with loved ones, but Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, will be there for us for eternity. Let's pray. Father and in heaven, pray that we would see these glimpses in Scripture and we would get excited about eternity far more excited about eternity even than this life we have. Father, if we are living lives of of hopeless despair, of pain and suffering, if we've lost someone recently, Father, I pray that you would weep with us and console us, but that you would lift our faces, point us towards heaven and say, this is not all there is. There's an eternity waiting for you because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Lord Jesus, we have so much more to look forward to than just this life. And we pray that you would create in us hearts that long to be with you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you for coming. I'm ready to go. Yes, sir. Last verse that I quoted... um,